Well, good morning once again, saints. He is risen. Yes, we gather here today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We come together collectively to lift our eyes to gaze upon the most consequential event in all of human and redemptive history. Yet what we often forget is that we celebrate and we mark the empty tomb every Sunday. Christians around the world gather on Sundays because it is the first day of the week. It's the first day after Sabbath. That is the day that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Every time we gather on Sunday, saints, we are pointing to the resurrection of the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. So in reality, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Amen? Amen. Well, open your Bibles with me to First Peter, if you would. It sounds strange not opening our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. If you are visiting or listening online, we began our journey through Mark about five months ago. And you can visit sermonaudio.com or our new website, harrisonhills.org, or our Facebook page if you want to catch up on that series and walk with us on our expository journey through the most amazing gospel. Well, our text this morning will be particularly familiar to some as we're currently working through First and Second Peter in our adult Sunday school. You know, coming together for Easter possesses very unique challenges. You know, there's a danger in holidays and in yearly, in yearly celebrations. The temptation is for it to become common to us, for it to become familiar in a way that loses the awe and the wonder of the event. Easter. Easter. We know that the resurrection is the main event in all of history. We know that it is the foundation. It's the cornerstone of every action, every prophecy, every sovereign act of God in redemptive history with his creation has been accomplished with this one event in mind. It's the hinge on which the entire door swings. And it must be so. Paul told the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. That's pretty simple. If Christ has not been raised, we're fools. If Christ has not been raised, we are a people most to be pitied. We're a people who have no hope. But far be it from that, we have a living hope. Wrought from eternity past. Every universe, every star, every galaxy that extends beyond what the most powerful telescope can see was made and centered around this event. You see, God is for God. God is for his glory. He is jealous for his glory. And the galaxies and the stars and the quasars and the planets, the creation around you, all the creatures of the sea, all the animals running on the Serengeti, snow-capped mountains, sunrises, sunsets. How about the human eye with a billion light-sensitive cells? These are the creations of a thrice-holy God. Creations of the Trinity to bring God, glory, and all of that surrounds and points to this one event in history. The ultimate purpose of creation was in part to facilitate the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. Behold the magnificence of God. Creating a galaxy that is so large that we cannot see it from one end to the other with a telescope does indeed bring him glory, but that's nothing. That's easy. God says, I am going to make dead men live. I'm going to take the vilest of creatures, 
who are utterly depraved in every aspect, whose every intention and thoughts of their heart are only evil continually. And out of that, I'm going to make a people for myself. I'm going to bestow upon these people a living hope. I'm going to orchestrate an act that is unthinkable, an act that a thousand people in a thousand years could not dream up. I'm not only going to give my only begotten son, who is God of very God, I'm going to send him down to this corrupt people. He's going to live a spotless life without stain or blemish, and I will bruise him. And I will pour out my wrath on him, and I will impute, I will lay upon him the sins of the world. And when he has been killed violently and horribly, watch what I do next. I'm going to do something that is going to bring these people a living hope. And it will come by God performing an act that brings God the maximum amount of glory. That's what this whole thing is about, saints. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. That's why our hope is alive. That's why it's living, because He is alive. Could we even begin to imagine this grand event becoming common to us? Well, before we actually start preaching this morning, let's dig into our text. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible, and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be gathered on this Resurrection Sunday. We gather as a people appointed to love. We are appointed to joy because we have a real hope, a living hope. Because Christ lives, we have cause to sing. We have cause to live with abandon for the King of Kings. And we have cause to bring others to the well of mercy that we have drank so richly from. Be with us this morning as we open the text. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, those of you who join us on Sunday morning for Adult Bible School will remember the audience that Peter is writing to. Peter was writing to disperse Jews, to scatter Jews who had been struck and scattered by persecution, even as Nero was beginning his reign of terror against Christians. And in the midst of this persecution, Peter, he writes to these believers to remind them, to encourage them that the reality of a risen Christ trumps all that they may see, all that they hear, all that they might feel in their bodies. Yet upon what basis does Peter make this claim? Why does Peter tell these persecuted and destitute, scattered people that they have a living hope? It's because they have a living Savior. P Peter elevates their gaze off of themselves. He's almost singing off the page a doxology to them. And as painful as your circumstances might be, Peter says, look up. He's alive. And because he's alive, you have an inheritance. Because the tomb is empty... You have a living hope. Let's begin verse 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there. 
As it so often does, the English betrays us here. The English reads, blessed be the God. But the Greek says simply, bless God. In other words, give God the glory and the thanks. Bless God. Not that He is blessed, but that we are to bless Him. There's no victimology coming from Peter here or a focus on the trial and the hardship for these scattered people. He's coming straight out of the gate saying, give glory to God. Bless Him. Now pan back on verse 3. And I want us to notice something before we zoom back in. Who is the actor here in this verse? And who is the one being acted upon? We see that God the Father is the actor here, isn't he? Jesus Christ is the one being acted upon. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is that about? Who are we blessing here? God the Father. Who according to his great mercy. Whose great mercy? God the Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Who has caused you to be born again to a living hope? God the Father. Via what means? What was the vessel? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What are we driving at here? Speaking of the angels at the tomb, Mark's gospel writes, but he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Well, we often say, and I'll continue to say on Easter, that he is risen because indeed he is. But that's not what the Greek actually says. It does not say he is risen, as we so popularly say. It says literally, he has been raised. Do we see the distinction here? To say he is risen is to imply that Jesus is the one doing the acting, that he's accomplished this on his own. But scripture is clear that it is God who has raised him from the dead. He has been raised. This is not playing with words or, or a distinction without a difference. The resurrection of Christ was an act all of God. Jesus was well and truly dead. He did not raise himself. That matters. Listen to scripture's testimony on this. Romans 8:11. God raised Jesus from the dead. And if God's spirit is living in you, he will also give life to your bodies that die. God is the one who raised Christ from the dead, and he will give life through his spirit that lives in you. Ephesians 1:20. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. In heavenly places. Acts 1.13. But put to death the prince of life. The one whom God raised from the dead. A fact to which we are witnesses. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And to wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus. Who rescues us from the wrath to come. This matters, saints, because if we're going to understand the resurrection rightly, if we're going to see the magnificence of it, we have to understand exactly what happened here. If Jesus raised himself from the dead, Jesus would be testifying about himself at this point. But it is the Father's wrath that must be satisfied. It is God the Father who would bruise his only son. It is God the Father who needed to be propitiated, meaning he must be satisfied. Jesus was dead. This matters. And that means that this must be an act of God from start to finish because it is God the Father who must place his stamp of approval on the sacrifice of his son. 
which is exactly what the resurrection is. Not was, is. The satisfaction of the Father by the death of His Son is active and it is applied afresh and anew with every person that repents of their sin and puts their faith and trust in Christ for salvation. God the Father doing the raising is vital. It is the testimony of His satisfaction. It's the divine stamp of approval that our sins have been borne on His shoulders. That the punishment for our wickedness has been poured out on Jesus. Yes, He is risen. He is risen. But even more importantly, He has been raised. So before we dive back into our text, how did God accomplish this? What was the mechanism for God acting on the lifeless body of Christ? By what vessel? Through what means? Romans 6, 4. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of God the Father. He accomplished it by His glory. And for His glory, the glory of God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. By His glory, for His glory. And because of that, we get the fruit. We get the fruit of that last part of Romans 6, 4, so that we too might walk in newness of life. Back to our text today, 1 Peter 1, 3. We established the who here, didn't we? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an act of God the Father. That's who is performing here. This is who we're talking about. That's the who. Now, how about the why, beloved? How about the why? What's the motive for God here? Yes, we know God does what he does for his glory, but he's also acting for our good, for our glory, for, for his glory, for our good. And we see that here. Keep marching down the verse who, according to his great mercy. So what is God's motive for doing what he's about to do? Why did he send down his divine stamp of approval when God the father rolled away the stone? His great mercy. His great mercy, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians two. Notice here in our text, Peter points to mercy. He points to mercy in this instance, not to grace. This is an important distinction. John, Dr. John MacArthur writes, quote, mercy concerns an individual's miserable condition. Whereas grace concerns his guilt, which caused that condition. Divine mercy takes the sinner from misery to glory, meaning he has a change of condition. And a divine grace takes him from guilt to acquittal. That's a change of position. First, God changes your condition by his mercy, and then God changes your position. By his grace, according to his great mercy, according to his great mercy, according to God's desire to not pour out on us the judgment we deserve. That's mercy. That's not getting what we deserve. That's God's motivation. That's the love of God to not give us what we deserve, to put that weight and that punishment upon Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, back to our text, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us, has caused us just as the resurrection of Jesus Christ was an act of God, the father. So is your regeneration and change. 
You don't one day discover that you need a new heart by your own wanderings and musings. He has caused you to know this. Your salvation is not of you. Your salvation, just like the resurrection, is all of God. He has caused you to desire him. In the case of our text, he has caused you to what? To be born again. Not what it says? To be born again. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. But lest we be confused, as Jonah cried out to God from the belly of the whale, salvation is of the Lord. He has caused you because of his great mercy to be born again. Resurrection is all of God. Salvation is all of God. And now because of the great love with which he loved us, because he has caused us to be born again, because he is moved and motivated by his great mercy. What does our text say? We have a living hope. We have a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When we say that we have hope, this is not a hope as we might use the word today. I hope the weather clears up. I hope you feel better. I hope the old roof doesn't leak. I hope, I hope. That's not a living hope. Those are dying hopes. Those are hopes that are subject to the fallen world. Job 8.13 says the hope of the godless shall perish. Paul told the Ephesians, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. True and living hope rises and falls on possessing Jesus Christ as your high treasure. If you do not possess him as your own through repentance and faith, you have no hope. For as an Adam, all die, period. Because the default mode of every sinful human heart is to be a hater of God. Likely not a person gathered in here today would say that they were a hater of God. Now, I'm not much into organized religion, you might say. I don't really do the church thing, but I lead a pretty good life and I certainly don't hate God. No, Jesus speaks so clearly in the Gospel of John. If you love me. You will obey my commandments. If you do not obey my commandments, you do not love me. Paul tells us in the Romans that we cannot be agnostic toward God. No one is neutral. We are either friends of God, reconciled by the power of the resurrection, or we are enemies in God in our mind through wicked works. Roman tells us that before coming to Christ on our face, we are in fact haters of God. For if, Paul writes... When we were haters of God, the death of his son made us at peace with him much more. Now that we are his friends, we will have salvation through his life. Romans 5.10. How can Paul say this? He just called every one of them haters of God before they came to Christ. How can he say that? He didn't even know the people he was writing to at the church in Rome. He didn't even know them. He didn't need to. He wasn't passing judgment. The judgment's already been passed from the foundation of the world. To be clear, there are only two types of people in the world. Those who have a living hope and those who are without hope. That's it. Every person who has ever lived in history, every person in your family, your mailman, your neighbor, every one of them either has a living hope or they have no hope. 
They are either a hater or a lover of God. Full stop. That's scripture. There is no third category. Though we all wish that there was one, there's no gray between the black and the white. And I know that's terribly offensive to some people. I get it. But instead of getting offended, why not just repent and get saved? Watch what the Lord will do. You have God's word on it. This living hope found in Christ, found only in Christ, this hope, Paul says in Romans, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. There is one body, Paul tells the Ephesians, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. This is, Paul tells the Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A dying hope is one that has no anchor, no assurance of success. It's a wish. It's a wish. But listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes our living hope. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place Behind the curtain. Unmovable. Unshakable. Why? Because it's been wrought. It's been purchased and sealed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is anchored upon no less than the most consequential event that ever was or ever will be. If you're to be a believer, if you are a believer, and you're ever tempted to doubt the surety of your salvation, if the ground feels like it's shifting under your feet. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Your hope has a guarantor. It has a cosigner. God says, I am guaranteeing your hope through the resurrection of my son. And what is that promise? What is the hope that we possess? Verse four, first Peter one, verse four. To obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you. What has the resurrection of Christ that early morning purchased for those who are in Christ? Well, it says we've obtained an inheritance. And then Peter goes on to describe that inheritance. We could use no better word here, honestly, than inheritance. Why? Because you don't earn your inheritance, do you? It's a gift. You didn't do anything for you. It is given to you because of your relationship to the one who's giving it. Your possession and receipt of your inheritance has nothing to do with how you performed. It is because you are a son or a daughter. And so we are. And so we are. But this inheritance is not like an earthly inheritance where thieves break in and steal, where moth and rust destroy. No, Peter goes to great lengths to explain our inheritance to us. Our text says that our inheritance is first incorruptible. It's incorruptible. Some translations, yours might say imperishable. That means that it cannot die. It cannot be degraded or destroyed. Our corruption, though we are being sanctified, we're still sinners. And our current imperfection does not kill this inheritance. It's not kept incorruptible by your works. It is a work of God. 
It's set apart from you. It is incorruptible by us or by any other force. Second Peter says our inheritance is undefiled. It's undefiled. This means it's flawless. It's flawless. Everything around us in this life, saints, as good and as beautiful as it may be, every natural or temporal thing is marked by imperfection. It carries the stain of Adam. It bears the pollution of the world, doesn't it? Not our eternal inheritance. It stands undefiled. It stands without flaw. Finally, it's unfading. The Greek here says it is Amerantin or Amarath. If you look at many Byzantine or Greek Orthodox paintings, you'll often see Mary holding a rose. That's called a Amarantin rose, representing Jesus. It never withers or fades. The forces of nature have no effect on it. The effects of time carry no sway. And why would it? This unfading rose does not reside in time. As humans, we often forget that time itself is a created element. We're subject to this limitation everywhere we go. It dictates how we organize just about everything in our lives. And as any mother in here will tell you, there are never enough hours in a day. Anyone who's looked at the clock and sighed or missed out because of time or been at the wrong place at the wrong time can take great hope that this inheritance we're talking about is not subject to this creation known as time. I've failed the clock before and the clock has certainly failed me, but not this. Time's effects cannot touch it. It will not wither. It will not fade. And we are told why. We're told why. Why is my inheritance incorruptible? Why is it undefiled and unfading? Last part of our text. Because it has been kept in heaven for you. Some translations say it is reserved in heaven for you. This is a beautiful word. This means guarded or intensely watched over. Set aside in a lockbox, guarded by the most powerful one in the universe, in the most perfect and undefiled place in the universe. How safe is that? How secure is your inheritance? We need to hear these words in a world of shifting sand, in a world of degrading and crumbling culture. If you are in Christ this morning, your incorruptible, undefiled and unfading inheritance purchased through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is in a divine lockbox. And it is guarded by heaven's hosts amidst all that is perfect. What more surety and stability could we ask for in this life? But yet a question lingers, doesn't it? You've been called into the estate attorney's office and you've been told that you have this magnificent inheritance. And he's telling you how secure it is and how wonderful it is. And you say, great, what is it? What is it? Well, the glorious answer to that could fill a library. We could be taken up in the clouds with all that we could reflect on and the promises that are ours in Christ. But what's in mind here? Well, first, we actually see five crowns that we can receive as our inheritance that are outlined in Scripture. They are the imperishable crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory and the crown of life. Well, the imperishable crown first. This is a crown that stands in contrast to the fleeting treasures of this earth. It's a reward, as was described. 
in our inheritance as a crown or a badge or a reward that the decay of the world cannot touch. Paul tells the Corinthians, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is disciplined in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. How about the crown of rejoicing? Saints, part of our inheritance is that God is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. The crown of rejoicing tells us that there will be no more death. There will be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Paul tells the church at Thessalonica about this crown. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Here it is. Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Part of your inheritance is that you will worship and be in the presence of Jesus Christ. And if that were not enough, he goes on. We obtain a crown of righteousness, a crown of righteousness. Paul tells this young student, Timothy, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give to me on that day and not to me only but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the most special crown because it's so alien to us. This is the very righteousness of Christ imputed to us, a foreign righteousness, one that's not our own, that's given to us, made possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as if that were not enough, how about a crown of glory? We don't have to go far in our Bibles this morning to find this one. It's on the next page of your scripture. First Peter five, four. And when the chief shepherd appears. You will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. There's that unfading again. Amaranthan. This crowd does not. This crown does not fade or become tarnished. Finally, scripture shows us that as believers in Christ, as those who have loved His appearing as those who have obeyed his commands, as those who have laid aside their life for the sake of the gospel, that they've sacrificed, they've suffered, they've endured hardship and pain or even death for the gospel. We will receive the crown of life. John, the revelator writes, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested And you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. But this is not just for those who have suffered for his namesake. James tells us, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to who? To those who love him. Do you love him? Then you will receive the crown of life. Well, pastor, how do I know if I truly love him? If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Pretty simple. But you see, saints, our inheritance goes far beyond this. All of these crowns that we just talked about that are put in a divine lockbox that are kept set aside for you. Guess what? Guess what happens to these crowns? Revelation 4, 10 and 11. The 24 elders 
fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What a glorious thing. We are going to be so enraptured with the love of the Savior, so enamored and overwhelmed to be in the presence of purity and love, that we're standing there and we have nothing left to bring except this crown that we've been given on our heads. Nothing to bring our King. We take off that crown that incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading crown, and I throw it at His feet in worship. Glory to God. But what now, saints? You had your inheritance. You had your crowns. Now you've cast those crowns back to Him. We obtain all of these crowns, and we cast them back at our Savior's feet. What then do we have? Paul tells the church in Philippi, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? In order that I may gain Christ. Our inheritance is so much more than crowns. Our inheritance is a person. Christ, the risen Christ, is your inheritance. He is your prize, your affection, your love, your all. We're striving for a person. He's our prize. He's our inheritance. But know this, if your highest desire is not for him on this earth, that would not change in heaven. If your highest prize, if your highest desire is not for him this morning, Here on earth right now, that would not change in heaven. The great Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote, quote, If worship, if being in church here this morning does not capture your attention at present, what makes you think it will thrill you in some heavenly future? If ungodliness is your delight, your delight here on earth, what will please you in heaven where all is clean and pure? Listen to me. You would not be happy there in heaven if you are not holy here. End quote. The ultimate inheritance that is waiting for the true believer is not the bliss of heaven. It's not. It's the one on the throne in that heaven. Everyone wants to go to heaven. Every person you could ask on the street would say they want to go to heaven. They think that's the reward. It's not. Heaven is what houses the reward. Christ. Do you desire heaven or do you desire Christ? Because he is your true inheritance. Heaven is wonderful, but Christ is more. Heaven is beautiful, but Christ is more. Is he your highest desire? That's the question that Easter and that resurrection has made possible. Do you possess the living hope? Our living hope is not a place or a thing. Our living hope is a person and he is alive. And he is coming back for his people. The tomb is empty, yes. Even though he was delivered up for our trespasses, he has been raised for our justification. God has put his eternal stamp of approval upon the sacrifice of Christ by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the resurrection 
and the life. Whoever believes in him, even though he dies, shall live again. That promise is laid aside for us. It's kept under lock and key. No thief can break in. We have a living hope. And it's embodied in the resurrected Christ, who is our possession, who is our treasure, our incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. Let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, we are grateful beyond words to be able to gather, to remember, and to celebrate with fullness of hearts that the tomb is empty. And because the tomb is empty, we have an inheritance. We will obtain many crowns. And Lord, we will cast those crowns at your feet and we will obtain our true inheritance. You, Christ. Lord, we ask that this word would not return void. We ask that it would do its work in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.